0: I'm Caleb Zakarin, assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Intellectual History. Today, I'm speaking with Quinn Slobodian, Marion Butler-McLean Professor of the History of Ideas at Wellesley College. We are discussing his new book, Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Crack Up Capitalism is part intellectual history, part gothic novel. Quinn explores the world of zones, locations free of the normal rules, regulations, and democratic systems found in many nation states. Quinn explores how a class of thinkers, following in the wake of Milton Friedman, imagined a world of many micronations built by and for multinational corporations. Quinn, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Happy to be here. Yeah, this is a, a really, uh, you know, fun read. Maybe is the wrong word, um, but it was it was really a, a fascinating read. Uh, and you, you include a lot of a lot of very great and striking details. But before getting into those details, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Sure. Um... I was trained as a German historian at New York University. My first book was about sort of third worldism and the arrival of third world politics into 60s West Germany. It followed that with a book called Globalists, The End of Empire, The Birth of Neoliberalism, which was trying to kind of put the intellectual history of neoliberalism into more of a framework of North-South politics and bringing the politics of decolonization and the kind of origins and genesis of what we now call international economic law. So this is the sort of the row that I've been hoeing in the in the last couple of decades, I guess, and this is sort of my latest attempt to rethink some of the assumptions we have about political geography.
0: How did the main idea for this book come about? And you mentioned also your your previous book, Globalist. It feels like it's uh, in many ways a follow up to that book. So, so also, how are those two books related?
1: Sure. So that book came out in twenty eighteen, Globalist, and it was a funny time to publish such a book because I had started writing it well before the kind of ruptures of 2016, the kind of Brexit and Trump moments in a period when I think the notion that um, politicians were kind of subordinated to the forces of global economic um, competition was much more common and had even a kind of a consensus status, you know, that no one really approached the, the poetry of Tony Blair saying that globalization was just like the changing of the seasons and Governments could do nothing but kind of, you know, form themselves in in response. But into the Obama era, for sure, the two terms, of the Obama era, this notion was still very strong that that globalization was a force beyond human control and human comprehension, and all that politics was was an effort at adaptation. So I think that you know when I started writing that book in the in the second term of the Obama administration, really get it going, I thought I was writing a kind of history of the present, but when Trump and Brexit came along and kind of smashed up quite a bit of that consensus and brought things back to a discussion of nationalism and kind of deglobalization, suddenly I realized I'd written a a history of the recent past. I had also, as it turned out, written a book with a word in the title that became a rather um, toxic kind of buzzword of the far right very quickly in a way that was actually not even known to me at the time when I titled my book Globalists, I thought it was just a way to describe people who understood problems of sort of planetary economic administration as the primary intellectual task. But in the intervening years, so this idea that there is a kind of a cabal of small small number of elites who kind of are puppet masters at the global level, who are often called globalists, has really become one of the way that the right and the far right has criticized actual existing politics. So part of it was my desire to sort of look at a different scale and say that if you want to understand how capitalism works in the most basic empirical sense, then you need to get past a fixation on either the global scale or the national scale, which tends to be the two registers between which kind of opinionizing toggles on this issue, and look underneath the envelope or underneath the surface of nations. The umbrella term that I use in this book that I borrow from geographers and anthropologists and architectural theorists and urbanists is this idea of the zone. So the book kind of had two intentions. One was to kind of synthesize and summarize and and the work of others really to sort of draw attention to the fact that national territories are themselves very fragmented internally and have, you know, special laws, special regulations or lack thereof that end up concentrating economic activity uh, in some places and not others. And the second part of it was to sort of write a more intellectual history of those libertarians and neoliberals who were sort of enamored with this category of the zone, who were not drawn to the idea of kind of global economic uh, regulation, or as I call it a globalist, the global encasement of markets, but were more charmed with the possibility of opting out or escaping or eluding regulation or working at the seams of regulation, let's say. So the book kind of had this dual character, like both a kind of handbook to all of these new forms of subnational jurisdictional ordering that have become so much more common in the last 40 years. And then at the same time, to kind of tell a a lesser known story of intellectual genealogy that runs through this um, this group of people who are drawn to these
0: zones. I think probably a useful entry point into this book is if you... Uh, if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about who Milton Friedman is. I, I know many people will be familiar with Friedman, uh, but he really appears throughout the book, uh, seemingly behind every single idea there at the opening of every project, at every <laughs> appearing in every zone. So who is Milton Friedman mm-hmm. and why are his ideas so important for understanding the topic of your book?
1: Yeah. I mean, he, as the same way that I used Hayek and Globalist, uh, Milton Friedman and to be sure, also his son, David Friedman, and his grandson, Patry Friedman, do serve as kind of like through lines or tour guides, you could say, on this uh, global trip through the zones. Um, it's not, in most cases, to suggest that they somehow were engineering these things. In most cases, they were. But it's kind of a, it's kind of a useful a methodological tool to kind of explain why someone would be a, as a kind of... Self described adherent of classical liberalism or the idea of the free market, why would they be so drawn to these peculiar, kind of often anachronistic seeming places? And I mean, Friedman himself, you know, he's born in the 1920s. Uh, he's uh, a young man at the end of the Second World War, very much involved with the creation of it. You could say a kind of activist neoliberal intellectual movement around the Mont Pelerin Society becomes the core figure in the so-called Chicago School of Economics, which attempts to apply neoclassical techniques to many of the things which were normally considered beyond the ken of economic analysis, so the the study of, of politics and human behavior and the work of someone like Gary Becker and George Stigler kind of further the Chicago School agenda. He comes into the book, in fact, he begins the book because in the 1970s, as I discussed in Globalist, there was a real fear that the kind of global capitalism was being upended from two different directions. One was through sort of domestic, militant, mobilized working class movements in the industrialized North. So, you know, strike waves really, really stark and marked in the 1970s in the U.S., but more so in the U.K. and Western Europe. And then also in the, the strident demands being made from the decolonizing world and the, um, the global South from Latin America to Africa and Asia, who were organizing as many historians have now discussed in something called the new international economic order. So there was this fear that Friedman and others had that this twinned principles of kind of uh, universal suffrage and decolonization, which was bringing a version of democracy into the world system, were um, existential threats to the smooth functioning of capitalism. The book begins with him discovering what he feels like as a a solution to the problem, which, as it turns out, is the crown colony of Hong Kong, where he's standing It's part of a Mont Pelerin Society meeting in 1978, and also to film the first episode of his extraordinarily popular television series that he filmed for PBS, Free to Choose. The thing that I found that caught my imagination in many ways is kind of the beginning of the book was just to ask myself, you know, how was it that this place, a very small place You know, a colony in an era of decolonization, um, you know, perched on the edge of enormous communist power with a kind of expiry date already built in, this idea that it would be, for large parts, it would be returned to China in 1997. How is it that that Friedman could see this very uh, unusual place as a kind of template for the future? And what I conclude and what I concluded across the course of the book is that these strange places, places that are non-democratic, that are often small, that are kind of, it evade the problems of national self-determination and democratic representative government became kind of lodestars for a new, um, strain of the libertarian imagination. And he was drawn to <clears throat> the Hong Kong version. His son, David Friedman, who was, uh, very much active in the Society for Creative Anachronism and Medieval Reenactment, as well as being a practicing lawyer and law professor, um, was drawn to sort of varieties of small-scale, what I call micro-ordering in the book, often more uh, drawing from, as he called it, law systems very different from our own. So he has a famous article proposing that medieval Iceland had a version of privatizing law and order that that might very well be brought back into the modern world to solve much of the problems of whatever, mass incarceration and so on. His son, Patry Friedman, who is you know around my age, a Gen Xer, um, is the, was the animating spirit behind the idea of seasteading, the idea that you could set up um, jurisdictions that could be almost independent nation states on sort of offshore platforms beyond um, national jurisdiction. So there's been, you know, people sniffing around a lot of this stuff and, and a certain amount of stuff written about what's often called exitarianism, but it seemed to me nobody had really put it all between two covers. And so that was really the point of the book is to say like this, late, this later generation of libertarian radicals who weren't like Hayek or Mises, you know, weren't still operating with an idea of how to use a strong state to protect a free market. But who, in many cases, were American, who were kind of enamored with the frontier, the idea of being able to elude authority altogether. They were kind of at, you know, more like the bleeding edge of market radicalism, what they would call anarcho-capitalism, which you know Milton Friedman himself didn't subscribe to, but his son did, and his grandson did too. So I wanted to fill out what I thought was right, so far a rather thin intellectual history of these more recent uh, market
0: radicals. So you mentioned that Friedman went to shoot his uh, his film his film series Free to Choose on Hong Kong. So, so why Hong Kong? What was what, what was Hong Kong like in the, in the seventies when Friedman went to shoot it uh, shoot there? And you also in the book detail sort of the history of the Hong Kong and why uh, it's become this kind of seductive model uh, for other economic zones. Uh, so I was wondering if you could just flesh that out a little. Sure. I mean, it turns out that the time he was there was also quite an
1: interesting moment. Um, Friedman had been visiting Hong Kong uh, for, for years, in fact. He was close to the, the um, financial secretary, a guy named John Cowperthwaite. And what was interesting in the first instance for him was that you know Britain had ex- experienced the great expansion of a welfare state in the post-war years under labor and then sort of taken up by the conservative governments that followed as well and hong kong hadn't gone along so the kind of you in 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 hong kong you've had to their mind a kind of preserved in amber version of sort of the british commercial virtues before their kind of corruption by the social democracy of the labor party and the kind of softening effects of the nanny state and the welfare state so in the late 70s hong kong had already moved quite rapidly from doing sort of extremely low wage um, manufacturing sort of close to the bottom of the global value chain of things like small toys and trinkets and plastic flowers and stuff, but they had been doing so in such a flexible manner that they were able to kind of move up the value chain quite quickly so if if a company put in a contract for a certain order, you know a company would form move into a new Small factory space, hire a workforce, and turn around the contract. You know, whatever it is, a matter of weeks or months, and then dissolve the firm, dissolve the workforce. In other words, fire everyone, and be sort of at the ready for whatever new assignment came down the pike. So this model of like flexible production, um, contracting, subcontracting was, which now we think of as the version of sort of outsourcing and flexible supply chains, was was really at the forefront in a place like Hong Kong. So. By the late '70s, they were they were moving into financial services, becoming you know in the wake of the dissolution of the Bretton Woods settlement and the explosion of offshore lending. <clears throat> they were becoming the kind of East Asian outpost, along with Singapore, for that kind of activity too. They were the big export entryway for things going into Hong Kong or into the People's Republic of China as Chinese the China's, Chinese economy opened up everything that came in from investment to goods it was coming through the kind of narrow aperture of Hong Kong's um, in opening to the mainland. So they were experiencing this sort of supercharged growth, activity, rates of profit on the basis of very light touch regulation, very low wages, next to no union representation or organization. And then most importantly, no practice of one person, one vote democracy. So there could be no kind of correlate of the Labour Party in Hong Kong because they used a kind of convoluted corporatist system where um, you know communities were represented by by delegates, and those delegates were on the same footing as like CEOs from the major corporations. So it was a lot more like, again, nineteenth century kind of um, Prussian style democracy than it was one person one vote kind of post-war suffrage. So this was a this was a version of, organizing society that seemed to be sort of designed, as they're commented often, to act like a kind of laboratory experiment for the mathematical model or sort of the textbook version of Neos classical economics in practice. There was a locked in low tax rate. There was, um, you know, full bank secrecy, guaranteed freedom of trade and, and investment in and out of the colony. The, the, the sort of fly in the ointment, of course, is that there was this prospect also of China taking the colony back. Um, Britain had acquired the island of Hong Kong during the first Opium War as a permanent colony. But most of what we call Hong Kong is an area called the New Territories, which was very important for, especially agriculture and expanding residential space. And that had been acquired on a 99 year lease in uh, 1898. So that was due to expire and the British were trying to convince the Chinese to let them stay or lease it back. And Deng Xiaoping was simply not having it. The Chinese wanted to erase this this colonial outpost and this kind of reminder of the shame of the century of humiliation. So the, the, these neoliberals I'm describing who are you know, deeply admiring of the Hong Kong model were sort of like, you know, with their wits in, like rending their garments, like this is so sad, our perfect place is going. It's like on the chopping block. But what they discovered in the course of the negotiations for the creation of a new constitution um, to govern Hong Kong after the handover was that, you know, to their great surprise and their great glee, the Chinese Communist Party actually wanted the same things as the Hong Kong business elite They wanted the same things as the ruling British colonial authorities. They also wanted rule of law in the sense of investor security, um, security of contract, Um, the ability to bring grievances for commercial disputes to a third-party arbitration. They wanted also like a perfectly functioning clockwork of what we would think of as global capitalism. So the neoliberals who were involved were pretty dumbfounded. Um, My favorite character there is a guy named Alvin Robushka, who is still a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, who spent a lot of time in in Southeast Asia and Hong Kong, and said that that the the new basic law, this new constitution that had been created, was actually better than the American constitution, that he was shocked that this Chinese communist had actually created a freer capitalist constitution than the American one, and that the, the US should actually import clauses from the Hong Kong basic law to the United States. It turns out that that didn't happen, obviously, but one of the things in that new basic law was a balanced budget amendment, which there were great efforts to constitutionalized in the US and which was eventually brought to um, Europe. So Germany has one now, Italy has one, Austria, Poland, and the flat tax, which was also sort of enshrined in the new Hong Kong basic law, also then traveled into Eastern Europe. So in the 1990s, country after country in former communist Eastern Europe adopted a Hong Kong style flat, flat tax. And, and they were using in many cases, the book written by this very same guy, Alvin Rabushka, who wrote what was described as the Bible of tax reform. So against odds, against the odds, you could say, the, the, uh, the hope of preserving this anachronistic outpost into a modern age actually ended up working. And much of the book is really about these efforts, sometimes successful, not always successful, to kind of achieve what one libertarian magazine said in a play on Che Guevara in 1977,
0: to create two, three many Hong Kongs of Multiplying across the world, I think what, when people think about uh, ne- you know neoliberalism or or libertarianism, uh, they think of small government, um, you know, lots of freedom. Uh, when they think of communist China, they think of uh, you know large large state, you know, controlling state power. Um, you know, and, and Hong Kong, as you as you sort of show, there's it's this kind of a you know the circle between the Venn diagram, or it's where the where the the two circles meet, and just this tension between uh, economic freedom and political freedom. So I was wondering if you could just talk about it. Maybe uh, you know if you want to talk about some of the other thinkers or examples in the mm-hmm. book, just about this sort of tension between uh, economic freedom versus political freedom.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, the the two terms, capitalism and democracy, in the in the subtitle or in the title and the subtitle are, of course, you know, have been the object of much discussion, especially by intellectual historians. So. Most famously, someone like Schumpeter believed that, in fact, capitalism and democracy couldn't coexist because democracy would produce too many kind of competing demands on the state and the multiplication of too many special interest groups such that the practice of capitalism would eventually become impossible. Mansur Olson, um, the political scientist, said similar things. It was kind of taken as... Almost common sense in the mid century and into the 60s and 70s that capitalism and democracy were not necessarily compatible, and that in fact, in the long run, democracy would lead to the transformation of capitalism into something else, something more like socialism. So that's part of the thing that makes it interesting to me because, you know, in the last few decades, we've been inoculated with, from that idea, and instead, kind of like told that no, capitalism and democracy are harmonious, they work in concert with one another, that they actually are mutually supportive. And I was interested in finding the kind of seam of that contradiction, like who, when did, when and who did people start saying this second argument rather than the first one? And the people that I look at in the book materialize this problem in a very interesting and very tangible way through the the creation of things called indexes of economic freedom. So they come up with these things in the 1980s and 1990s as a way to kind of make the case, in fact, that we shouldn't assume that capitalism and democracy are compatible. They make the case that um, we have been thinking in the Cold War mentality too much about democracy, the argument, the comparison they use is to this very well-known indicator called the Freedom House um, Freedom in the World Index, which ranked countries according to their level of freedom. And when they said freedom, they they really did prioritize questions of multi-party contested elections, of democracy, as we would call it. The people around Milton Friedman were dissatisfied with this way of measuring freedom, not necessarily because they didn't believe in democracy or hated political freedom, but they just didn't think that it that it was more important than economic freedom. So they felt you needed to t- tilt the balance in the conversations publicly and politically. So you needed to make sure that economic freedom had its say. What they did, however, though, when they started sitting down, literally, and having debates about how to codify and, and, quali- and quantify something as, as nebulous as economic freedom, is they discovered that their number one place was Hong Kong in, their, in the way that they had of measuring it, which had to do with the same Factors we mentioned a minute ago, the rule of law, the bank secrecy, freedom of, of trade and investment, and so on. And so number one was Hong Kong, according to their own measure. And number two was Singapore. And neither of these places are well known for their democracy. And in the case of Hong Kong, simply wasn't a place governed by universal suffrage or contested multi-party elections when they are ready. And neither was Singapore. It's been under the governance of one party since its creation in the 1960s um routinely practicing censorship and outlawing all forms of protest and assembly for purposes of dissent and so on. So they were actually, it seemed a little bit surprised by the outcome of their own investigation. Um at the meetings I have this in the in the book, like Gordon Tullock, a famous public choice economist, he says, you know, this, you know, this makes me think that maybe there was a coincidence that over the course of two hundred years, we saw capitalism and democracy moving in sort of in lockstep. Maybe, maybe it doesn't have to work that way. And Milton Friedman responded, "I think you're right that you know we actually have these meetings so that we can come to new discoveries. That what we've discovered is Hong Kong is freer than everywhere else, and it doesn't actually need democracy. So this is it. it it's a it is a fan of a weird one. And it, and it for people who work on Friedman. They're like a bit unhappy with this moment in his intellectual development, I think. Because if you read Capitalism and Freedom, I mean, it doesn't, his book from the 1960s, it doesn't say there's a necessary causal relationship between democracy and capitalism, but it doesn't say that they're at cross purposes. And in theory, he was happy with political freedom. But as he said repeatedly on the case of Hong Kong, practice shows that the multiplication of kind of democratic actors leads to the the hardening of economic systems over time, what was often described in or Olson's term as sclerosis. Um, So the enshrined version of freedom that they published first in the mid-1990s and continue to publish every year, the indexes of economic freedom, continue to put Hong Kong and Singapore sort of one and two um, year after year after year. When they scaled this up to create something called an index of human freedom, in other words, not just economic freedom, but human freedom altogether. They include a whole range of indicators, like level of genetic mutilation, uh, uh, genital mutilation, you know, chances of, of dying through a terrorist attack. Um, but they didn't include multi-party democracy. Um, so I think that it's a case where they where they can be very fairly criticized for quite openly into you know, demoting the importance of. Democracy in a normative political project, and and promoting a certain rather narrow idea of what economic freedom can mean, because it's not about um, positive freedoms in the sense of like the ability to enjoy life, the ability to like feel a sense of justice with your the people you live with in your communities. It's it, they're all negative freedoms, like freedom from taxation, freedom from regulation, freedom you know, freedom from red tape, and creating new businesses. Um, so it's been interesting for me because I am in like a kind of on again, off again, debates or interactions with libertarian intellectuals themselves. And this is one that they don't really go after me about because I think they're like, well, (laughs) it's kind of hard to deny. Like we have actually created entire indices to enshrine economic freedom as prior to political freedom. So what can you say? And part of the, the task of my book then was to say like, How do you defend that like where where do you go in the world to find your ideal polities if you do have this version of um, ranking the world according to political freedom or economic freedom above all things
0: one of the places that you discuss in the book is is singapore and i feel like singapore historically has so often been held up as like the beacon of uh you know non-democratic uh Capitalist advancement, and you know, people. I've never been to Singapore, but people that I know that have been there say that it is like the most immaculately clean, orderly city you've ever been to. And oftentimes, people credit this to like the stewardship of Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk about Singapore and maybe even compare it a little bit to Hong Kong and some other of these economic, even though it's it is a country, some of these other economic zone type places. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Singapore is fascinating.
1: The way that I talk about it in the book is to kind of argue that there's sort of Singapore one and Singapore two. Like if we think about the way that the myth of Singapore circulates and travels, I was sort of drawn to the example because of what you probably caught wind of, which is this, this notion that people who were pushing for the departure of Britain from the European Union wanted something that was often referred to as quote unquote, Singapore on Tams. So what that was, was vague. But I think I would argue, based on things I've discussed in the book, that it was premised on this idea of Singapore One, which is Singapore One is just like this tiny, tiny, tiny country, just took like a leap of faith in the 1960s, you know, left the shelter of the British Empire, um, opened itself up to any and all kinds of investment, um, relinquished control of the economy through, high, you know, through what would be high levels of regulation or state ownership, and sort of let capitalism you know, you know work through it as a kind of a conduit. And this is what the british some of the British conservatives wanted to do with the u k after brexit, you know, um take a leap of faith to just have uh, let optimism be our guide, you know, redirect matters to the global instead of the European continental market. This is a vision of like negative freedom. But if you look at the actual history of Singapore, you know, it's it's very different. Um, there was the entire island was nationalized after the, the Declaration of Independence. Um, 90% of the population lives in state-owned housing. There's enormous sovereign wealth funds and sort of state-owned um, investment funds that act as kind of venture capital arms for the state and also invest in things all over the world. Basically, the state states uh, as a capitalist actor there is something called the Central Provident Fund, so people can draw from that for healthcare and for um, for retirement and for buying homes and paying for education. There is actually, you know, a high level of state involvement in the economy. So this kind of Singapore too is is what I think that m- smarter people, let's say, actually, th- you know, see that they could carry out if they need to. Pivot towards, let's say, a just energy transition, or move into something like renewable tech, or AI, or whatever your desire is as a as a as a sort of post industrial state, whether you're Britain or the United States or whatever. And that sort of Singapore too, I think you know you can actually learn something from. The question is if if you need to take the other features of Singapore along with it. Um, the repressive political climate is not identified by most people as particularly healthy democracy, and then more importantly. Um, the whole system works on access to a huge supply army of labor from the region who uh, are treated as sort of completely disposable hire fire deport um, mostly people from you know South Asia and um, even China Malaysia who are brought in on short term contracts you know kept in dormitories sort of uh, secluded from the rest of the population and um, you know they work under pretty atrocious working conditions and um, are not given the same the same benefits that citizens are. So this two-tiered class system, which also adheres, as I discussed in the book, in the Gulf, obviously, is something that is a necessary part of the Singapore model. It's, it's not subtractable from it. You know, Well over 50% of the residents of Singapore are not citizens. And in the Gulf, it's much, much higher. So this if one wants to like glorify like a micro polity along the lines of a zone that has like a restricted democracy, but you know profits from some capitalist growth, then it's impossible not to realize that that also means that you're going to bring in with it a model of um, you know second class citizen, contractual contracted labor that um, needs to be kept on under kind of sort of militar, militarized guard to prevent them from disrupting the the process of of transformation that you have in mind. And that's something that is like kind of a red thread through the book. There's examples of this in South Africa, um, it, export processing zones in Honduras to a lesser extent, and these kind of fantasy spaces of Somalia, certainly a place like Liechtenstein, which I mentioned, and highly restricted citizenship law, but you know, open borders for capital and and banking. So that was a kind of... Micro design or micro engineering problem that I feel like it's good to be attentive to because it doesn't only happen like quote unquote out there in sort of distant places in Asia and Africa and much of what I talk about in the book is the attempt to do these sort of engineering of zones inside of states whether it's Britain, the United States, elsewhere. So the movement of that of that 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 pint size kind of political unit in and out of states is something that th- the specialists have really been tracking for a long time, but I really felt like the sort of popular discussion could profit from having some attention to that at a broader level too.
0: I, I first initially heard about some of the ideas um, that you discuss in the book. I heard about first heard about them a, a few years ago in sort of the Silicon Valley context. There There is uh, some, some bloggers who are writing about this sort of thing. Um, you know, people that were followers, people that you discuss like Hans Hermann Hoppe and Murray Rothbard. Mm. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about the, you know, the sort of the connection you, you mentioned a little bit like Patrick Friedman, but, um, the sort of the, you know, the intellectual history aspect of it, of the development of these libertarian ideas into main, maybe let's say, uh, promoters now, like Peter Thiel and Balaji Srinivasan in Silicon Valley, who actually have some, some dollars behind what they're saying to potentially make something something come about though obviously with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank their I mean their assets got restored so maybe they're not so libertarian
1: anymore yeah I mean part of the the emergence of anarcho-capitalism as a kind of vibrant strain of libertarianism in the last 20 thirty years has to do with this kind of disenchantment with the global level, which I sort of began the conversation with so this idea that you could effectively kind of sieve capitalism from its dangers by building up a sort of a denser and denser network of, of regulations is to some libertarians you know seen as really wrongheaded by the 1990s especially when the european union um and the un in their minds were all be being taken over by by sort of feminists and environmentalists and people who wanted to push civil rights doctrine and affirmative action down everyone's throat so there. That the new socialism was like a green socialism, kind of a, what we would call now like a woke socialism, had taken over the supranational plane. This was a common refrain through the 1990s and definitely afterwards as well. So, if you get this idea of we want to drop out and exit, then you immediately are confronted with this question of, all right, what will our new units be based on? Like, on the one hand, you have the obvious answer, which is just like payment at the door, like, you know, just on the model of the gated community, which as I discussed in the book is a kind of a model for this, then if you can afford to buy, you know, a residence inside some future putative so-called startup society, as the term is often used, then you can. But the interesting thing that some people, interesting in a kind of a grim way that some people said is like, well, if you're trying to replace democracy, then yes, you can replace it just with insurance companies and arbitration agencies and so on. But it's also good to have like a shared um, sort of tissue of norms and expectations, and a shared culture, one could say. And then some would, some of them would go as far as say, like, or even a shared race, because let's be honest, people of the same race tend to be, you know, trust one another more. There's like fewer disputes. This is a common sort of chain of um, of reasoning that people in the kind of right wing strain of the libertarian community were going through in the last thirty years or so. Um, Silicon Valley becomes important then because it has proven supposedly that you can just like conjure up world changing new technologies from, from very little. So the, the, the theme, the sort of ground of this is pretty well worn by now the way that, you know, of course, Silicon Valley did not appear out of nowhere. It was completely a product of the military industrial complex and the state funding of research and development, et cetera. But nonetheless, the fantasy was very strong. The idea that they had just somehow arisen in the far West and are now were now set to displace and replace everything that used to be the centers of power in the East. So you mentioned Balaji Srinivasan. He gave this memorable talk called Silicon Valley's Ultimate Exit 2013, so exactly 10 years ago, where he describes, you know, like the DC of laws and the, the New York of, of Advertising and magazines and the, the boston of of higher ed degrees as the paper belt, which were doomed to be superseded and replaced by all the new platforms and services coming out of Silicon Valley around the same time you know he's starting to get involved in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and if you flash forward ten years, I mean people like him who had been invested in that very early, even with all of its ups and downs, has still made like an extraordinary amount of money and They've experienced, I and mean, sort of what I say in the book. Like they've experienced something as close to like magic as you are likely ever to experience in political economic terms, and in some cases, they're well aware of that. So Balaji is, you know, prone to talk about the way that they had just larped a currency into exi- existence, right? And just like they had acted as if it were true, and it, then it was true. So his question then is, you know, why can't we larp a country into existence? Why can't we make a country too? And for a few years, Peter Thiel was on that bandwagon too, and Patry Friedman as well. However, it turns out that that for one thing, they hadn't LARPed a currency into existence. They'd LARPed a new speculative asset into existence in an era of zero interest rates. And pretty much anything could make money in that period, right? Like you, If you had a good pitch and you had a good sort of story, then people were giving money to people for all kinds of ridiculous things. At no point did Bitcoin fulfill the requirements of being considered a currency. So they didn't LARP a currency. They LARPed an asset the way people LARP Beanie Babies and Pokemon cards. Like they just LARP something that people thought was gonna be valuable and so they put money in it. Um, LARPing a country, it turns out, is much harder. I mean, you need territory. And as it turns out, the world has been divided up quite a while ago. And this problem seems to be still a pretty hard one to crack for them. So I describe in the book the attempt to create a kind of outpost in Honduras, originally on the model of the charter city proposed by Paul Romer, the Nobel Prize winning economist and latter-day proponent of revivifying colonialism in the charter city version. Um, in Honduras, it works for a while. They get a patch of land. They can make their own laws and so on, but then there's an election and now they're uh, in threat of being you know, booted out, expropriated, losing their privileges. And Cernovacian continues to talk about creating a new state, but it's never clear where this thing is supposed to happen. And it seems like at best, it's a kind of a slightly more bought in high loyalty version of a social network rather than something that actually fulfills the kind of laundry list of Westphalian sovereignty. It's not, there is right now no roadmap towards taking, you know, a beanie baby and turning it into a nation. It's still just um, a grift that he currently is using to pump up the price of Bitcoin so that he can probably sell some of it on the secondary market and make a chunk of money. So a lot of the you know a lot of the book is also about these kind of the sort of dreamscape of the last ten or twenty years and the way that these visions of sort of micronation creation are symptomatic of other things that are happening. And it's not intended to give credibility or or make people believe that these are serious thinkers more than it is to say that, like, you know, following their fever dreams can tell us something about the world that we've all been stuck in.
0: The final question is a more general question, just about thinking through, you know, where we stand today. Uh, I was reading recently about uh, Bretton Woods and how there was just after World War II, there was just this overwhelming consensus among economists and other uh, political leaders at that time off in you know many countries that there needed to be some world system that reigned in, you know, that it used the nation the model of nations, but it reigned nations in, uh, creating, you know, the IMF and the World Bank and uh, you know, created a way so that there would be some stability on the global order. Obviously, Brent Woods collapses in 1971, and then we're left with the IMF and World Bank and a few other international Organizations and now today feels like we're, you know we don't exactly know uh, you know where we stand. Is it a it, is there still U.S. global hegemony? Is there uh, multipolarity? Are uh, nations still the only game in town? Um, you know, and and I think your book sort of shows that there's a lot of people that that want there to be you know a third or fourth or fifth option. Uh, so how how do you sort of think through that uh, maybe tension between nationalism versus globalism, and then maybe maybe a few other alternative routes uh, that, you know, you're sort of seeing people experimenting with or thinking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean,
1: that 1944 moment, the Bretton Woods moment is, it won't repeat itself, right? I mean, it won't repeat itself partially because likely no time in the near future will any country be as overwhelmingly dominant compared to all other countries than the United States was at that moment, right? I mean, they were responsible for like, well over half of all the rest of the world's manufacturing put together, they were the unquestioned Titan. So it was that at that point, you know, even more so than today. The question was really like, will the US choose to take this leadership role or not? Because everything depends on that. And then from that question follows people, you know, people meaning individual nations sort of deliberation. Well, is it better to go along with whatever they're working on here or not? Well, obviously it's better to go along with the and and in some ways, that same debate sort of repeated itself in the 1990s around the creation of the World Trade Organization. You know, it was a little surprising, actually, that the United States was willing to sort of adopt like a pretty legalized regime within which they themselves would be subject to appeals, you know, charges, um, uh, accusations of hypocrisy if they deviated from the laws. I mean... It's not for nothing that the U.S. doesn't recognize the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, right? I mean, they don't like being called out. They don't like having accountability to anyone except themselves for the most part. So other countries, weaker countries, poorer countries going along with the WTO also made sense at that time because it was sort of like an offer you couldn't refuse situation. Like, would you rather just have arbitrary power used against you or would you rather have at least like the semblance of like an uh, arena for logic disputes? What I think is interesting across that period, like the 40s to the 90s, is that this idea that there would be a kind of a terrain of constant negotiation and potential cooperation was kind of taken for granted, was taken for granted. So, for example, as I was thinking about this today. We were talking about the 1970s in my world history class and the, the Helsinki Accords in the 1970s. And one of my students asked, You know why were the Soviets part of these negotiations? (laughs) Like why did they agree to be debating, sitting there debating with the Americans and like potentially agreeing to things that might constrain their room of maneuver? And it occurred to me that that was both. It was a good question because I it was something that I had taken for granted about the 20th century, which I think is increasingly not true. I mean. What are the state of negotiations between the United States and Russia and Ukraine right now? They don't exist. There are no negotiations that we know of anyway. There's certainly nothing happening in the way that like the Helsinki negotiations were happening. So I think that, that you know, at the very moment where every rational person sort of says, this collective problem of climate breakdown, especially demographic pressures, requires more than ever international co- cooperation and global solutions, um, you know, from a historical lens, we're moving further and further away from that willingness to negotiate even, and maybe further towards what, in a way, this dismal endpoint I'm describing in the book, and you know, the idea of crackup as an ongoing condition rather than as a momentary crisis is um, easier and easier to imagine the kind of the idea that some people have written about, which I think is correct, which is like the more seriously nations and national politicians take climate change and climate breakdown, the less likely they will be to actually cede sovereignty, um, you know, make enter into arrangements that limit the ability of them to to provision their own populations and so on. So I think it's it's really it's as the sort of the shoe pinches on this, I think the question is really gonna be more what kind of regional formations and subnational, you know, fragmentations are going to be the kind of strongholds for power and resources in the coming era, rather than the usual sort of IR question, which is like, how will nations go along with other nations into international agreements? I think we're going to be looking at scales between the nation and the world, on the one hand, regional, and then between the nation and the individual, on the other hand. Subnational kind of zones, of the kind I describe it, sometimes in caricature, sometimes in um,
0: more realistic portrait in the book. Yeah, obviously we di- we didn't get a chance to cover a lot of the examples in the book. There's 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 many others, um, and I recommend uh, people definitely check the book out uh, because uh, they're not just of the same model. You also talk about gated communities, um, which I think are a really interesting uh, sort of spin on on a different type of type of zone. Uh, well, Quinn, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. Uh, the book is "Crack Up Capitalism." I'm sure if you go to your your local bookstore, you'll you'll see it on display. Um, it's got a, a great cover too. Well, thank you so much, Quinn. Thank
1: you.